Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are, you know, on the other side. Uh, in this show, we wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and unequal country. And today's episode, Khalil, we go deep, deep, deep into those divides. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about Trumpism. We're talking about populism. We're talking about the far right, Christian nationalists. We have on our show Jeff Charlotte. He's a professor at Dartmouth College and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Yeah, yeah. This book is really powerful. Jeff's new book starts with his reporting way back in 2015. He's at Trump rallies and it continues throughout the Trump presidency. And this is the first part of the book. And he's talking with people at these rallies, the real diehard Trump supporters. And he's capturing for readers the depth of their belief. And Jeff is seeing Trump really through the lens of religion. He's seeing Trump as a kind of religious leader. And this book continues after the events of January 6, 2021. He travels the country to explore divides everywhere. Guns, militia, state legislative banning of books and overturning of reproductive rights. Jeff really believes that we are in a slow civil war. He calls it as he sees it. That's right. He thinks it's already begun. All right, let's do it. Let's get into this. All right, Jeff Charlotte. Jeff, thank you for being on Some of My Best Friends Are. It's been a long time coming. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Good to be with you both today. Yeah, Jeff, it's great to meet you. 
Jeff, uh, Khalil is just meeting you right now, but you and I have known each other. I was trying to do the math. I think it's 20 years. Really? Wow. That long? So yeah, we met uh, uh, via Harper's Magazine. Yeah, mm. yeah. You were doing your first piece for the magazine, Jesus Plus Nothing, which becomes yeah, your which book. which was the start of my, tw yeah, 20 years. So I've been going around thinking about this book. I've been reporting on right-wing movements for 20 years since that story. That story was a sort of the turn in that direction. So that magazine story that we worked on together, you as writer, me as a lowly fact checker, became your book, The Family. And it also became a docu-series. And I'll just sort of say, like, you've always been interested in religion and power. This is sort of something that has been much of your, your professional life's work. And I would say that the difference between that work back then and what you've been doing more recently is that you were looking at elites. You were looking at at least people who were proximate to power. And during the Trump era, you've looked more at like the people who are the masses, who are who are not necessarily in power, but how they've been been sort of controlled or sort of what their thinking is. Yeah. And I think the pivot point really is uh, Trump's descent on the golden escalator in 2015. And here he's bringing mm. down um, a fascist aesthetic. He doesn't mm. have a movement yet. And the question to me is, will he build the movement? So the question that becomes more interesting for me is one of reception rather than the one of the production of the narrative. And, and, and that kind of pivots me toward, will this movement form? Will I watch a social movement? Because the right has social movements too. Will I watch a social movement form in real time? And unfortunately, yes. Yeah, mm. no, that's really fascinating because I know in many ways, uh, the book you've written is written for us, the, the undertow scenes from a civil war. And by us, I mean like people who still believe in facts, uh, who still care about expertise and people who read books. But, you know, tell us, like, what do we need to understand about what you call the Trumpocene um, to help us understand what is happening in our country from all of, the, all of these Trump rallies that you've attended over the past several years? That's the first thing that we need to understand, that this is an mm. age of Trump in the same way that I think a lot of scholars would sort of date the age of Reaganism, not from uh, 1980 to 88, but from 1980, really, perhaps to 2016, such that Reagan defines a, a kind of a vernacular in which yes. American politics takes place, whether you're Democrat or Republican. And I think the Trump scene is he is he has given his language to the age. Mm -hmm. And I think um, uh, that's the first thing is that we live in the age of Trump. And so these debates is whether Trump is finished or not. They're right, really right. missing the point. I think of this this preacher in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Pastor Hank Kuhneman, and he's a prophet, and he, or so he says, and he says, mm. Trump is coming back, whether the man himself or his spirit in the flesh of another. And I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is just to pay attention to that seemingly crazy, you know, Trump is coming back, spirit in the flesh of another, that seemingly crazy narrative, right? But it's not crazy. It's also imaginative. And I think um, we have to contend with the fascist movement that did arise in response yeah. to that fascist aesthetic it is fascism is a form of imagination and where yeah. we get stuck on saying but what are their policies it's not about that it, it is a utopian movement they understand that their vision uh as as utopian and that brings with it so much momentum and energy and i'm not saying like it's unstoppable i definitely don't believe in inevitability but i think mm -hmm. as a country both left and liberals are still trying to yeah, resist yeah. it 
in terms of of an older politics. I, I have a follow-up question, Jeff, because this is one of the things that I would not have seen but for your reporting uh, about this and, and the, the amount of time you spend up close at these rallies. But you essentially give the anatomy of a Trump speech. And you wrap that anatomy around the sort of familiar tropes of evangelicalism uh, in, say, the career of Billy Graham. But you give these, this, this anatomy where you say there's the call, there's the snake, and there's the bullet. And maybe just sketch very quickly uh, to our listeners what exactly you mean by those three elements of a Trump rally speech. So this is maybe the most upsetting thing I say to a lot of non-Trumpers is I think Trump is one of the two best orators mm. I've ever heard. Mm. Um, and the other being uh, Barack Obama, you know, radically different style, but in terms of the ability to work a crowd and own a crowd. And part of the way Trump does it is um, through a kind of awful comedy, but it is comedy. Um, he does sketch comedy. He does uh, voices and so on. And it so distresses me that uh, uh, our colleagues in the press really don't pay attention to this because they call it just theater, right? Well, mm. there's no such thing as just theater. There's theater and it's powerful. The call is one. That was one he used in 2016 and um, he would sort of enact uh, the calls he was going to make as president, bringing back the industrial base and how quickly the, the chieftains of industry would bow to his will, right? And Promises so that, was that he was making that they didn't have to have any truth to them, but I just like grandiose promises. It wasn't even a promise. He was in enacting yeah. it. So you saw it happen. All right. So great. The company's already back. I just heard him. I just heard the guy on the phone. Well, you didn't hear it, but he's a good performer. All right. All right. So that's the first part of his speech. You call it the call. So Jeff, what's the snake? The, the snake was he would take an old song by actually a, a, a black civil rights activist and, and sort of perform it as this poem about uh, a woman who picks up a snake and the snake bites her. And he would do voices. You know, he'd do the voice of the snake and he'd do the voice of the woman. Why did you bite me? And, you know, the snake, silly woman, you took me in. You knew that's what I was. And to him, that represented the undocumented person. The crisis at the border that we call it now, the, the, which all of this criminalizing racist language about immigrants and the rapes and the murders and this sort of thing, that's where, the, that's where that snake metaphor shows up. And now the bullet, the last part of the speech, which you say is about the need for violence, like to protect or defend the people against those who Trump defines as traitors. You give us this crazy story, this example in the book about Trump talking about a mass execution in the Philippines. Yeah. The bullet is just straight murder. And I was actually just thinking of the bullet today, which is a fictional history, which he presents as real. It's uh, uh, General Black Jack Pershing in, in the Philippines and uh, this Muslim rebellion. And this never happened, by the way, but, you know, right. just obviously uh, they capture 50 Muslim rebels and they dip uh, 50 bullets into pig's Pig blood. blood and he and he might and the whole thing is acting he demonstrates he's swirling the bullets in the blood he's holding up he tells the story and they shoots 49 of them and he minds shooting them and the crowd is cheering leaves one man alive to go and 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 tell the and tale tell the story tell the, the story and then he does a story again the whole thing boom 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 and the crowd cheers louder and anything trump says about policy after that is missing the yeah. point. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. He knows that. That's the power of a really scary order. And it's not a, uh, you know, people say he's not fascist because he doesn't talk like Hitler and Mussolini. No, he talks like Trump. Right. Um, it is a That's different right. style. 
That's right. Jeff, you know, as you know, I'm in Chicago. And so we have a kind of version of Trump's the bullet speech here where he's like, you know, Chicago is this hellhole. And I spoke to this Mm -hmm. tough cop. I spoke to this great cop. And it changes in every version he tells. But it's this idea of just like oppressive policing. They could solve the crime problem in Chicago if we just let them. They could solve it in a minute or a day. It's this idea of like hyperviolence and um, justified in some form. Yeah, that's just so interesting. I hadn't thought of that as like the Chicago as one of his one of his sketches, actually. And I, I wonder how many of those city sketches he's had, because I've also heard him do one for Philadelphia. You know, I've never I've never been to a Chicago rally. Um, of course, I could watch them. It would be interesting to sort of see like the urban studies of Trumpism to go through when he's near different cities and what stories he tells about. Them. Actually, that Chicago story that he tells is not just you know, at Chicago rallies. And in fact, it's across the nation because Chicago, like Philadelphia, is a stand in for like black city. You know, it invokes all the sort of like racist uh, and they're not even like, you know, dog whistles. They're just like explicit. And so, you know, tough on crime rhetoric that he's able to to extol. Um, it just works wherever he is because Chicago has this meaning of like violent place, uh, gun crimes, black people. Well, let me ask yeah. you both a question. That's a that's something I've been thinking about. Is there actually any place now in the rhetoric for the term dog whistle, or is it simply <laughs> misleading us? I think I think you're right. I, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the explicit nature of the conversation today about saving the country in uh, in whatever context it is. Right now, it's the recent immigration changes by the Biden administration and the wall to wall coverage of of people at the border um, and the way in which the Biden administration is just unleashing uh, people who don't belong here. Now, I'm I'm not using the language in which it's articulated, but uh, all you have to do is add the filter of racist, Trumpist, white supremacist on top of that, and and that's what we're hearing. So, I think the the notion of dog whistle as a term of art these days is as anachronistic as even a so-called culture war. Um, mm-hmm. which we mm. still are using to define, like, what should we be saying about the truth of our history or not? Um, like, nor- which, it normalizes something that's extreme. Yeah, it's it a, puts it's it outside a, as if here's the normal flow of things and here's this other thing that intrudes, dog whistle or culture war, yeah. when that is the center. I would even say on the culture point that it minimizes it. Like, it's not that important. Like, there's real politics and then there's these culture wars. Um, and the culture wars are the bait and switch from the actual real thing that we're trying to get to. Um, so to me, that's the heart of the matter at this point. For example, we just saw Mauricio Garcia uh, kill people in Texas. I believe he killed eight people and was self-identified with white supremacist and Nazi culture. You actually, unlike most Americans, have seen up close what the appeals are within these white right-wing fascist movements that support Trump to people of color. Like, so <laughs> help help more people understand exactly how that works. Well, I, I you know, in the book, I use this term uh, from a friend of mine, Anthea Butler, who... Uh, this great slim book that I recommend called White Evangelical Racism. And, you know, Anthea Butler is a is a sort of a deep historian of churches and, and black churches in America. But this is you don't have to be an academic to read this book. And she's got this phrase like the promise of whiteness and the promise. And it's astonishing that we're still wrestling with this, given how old the promise of whiteness mm-hmm. is in America. I've just been listening to a book about Gary, Indiana, and the ways in which um 
the factory bosses and so on, sort of split uh, Serb immigrants and black migrants who at first had such solidarity that you'd have black workers speaking Serbian and uh, Serbs learning English from black workers. But the promise of whiteness was they could extend it to the Serbs, right? Hey, right. Serbs, we, we had you as outsiders, but you know what? We're going to make you insiders. Um, right. And you can keep expanding that promise of whiteness. And, and I think that's one of the insights that Trump had. So when you go to a Trump rally and it opens again and again and again with a black or a brown preacher, usually far to the right. And this is an important point. It inoculates the mostly white crowd. Well, I'm not a racist. Look, here I am yeah. enjoying what this, uh, this black or brown preacher has to say. Um, but then to go further than that, right, to, to understand that that's, that's one, it's doing the work of inoculation. Two, it is making Trumpism and fascism, I think, safe for a certain number of people of color. And, and I think if we understand it as having a gravitational force, of course it is. Fascism, white supremacy is an is a, a insidious enough disease, I think, in my understanding that it can be uh, carried by that so that you get down to uh, a rally in Sunrise, Florida, very blue area. And I don't even know if the crowd was mostly white. There's a Cuban-American, sure. Like everyone's like, okay, I get that. But then there's the Venezuelan-Americans and the Nicaraguan-Americans waving Nicaraguan and Venezuelan flags. Wow. There's also folks waving pride flags. Fascism has a gravity that yes. can pull people in. It says, I can make you part of this movement. And once you're part of this movement, you know, and then we also like rope in the, the liberal lie of colorblindness and suddenly the numbers start eroding. Jeff, um, be because I know this is such an important and hard uh, point to appreciate for a lot of people. I mean, they're stuck on the notion that white supremacy uh, cannot be uh, passed on to people of color. You have this really brilliant passage, and I'm I just going to read a, a portion of it. You said that to a colorblind crowd, quote unquote, the implicit equation is one of themselves with the formerly enslaved. Black becomes white, white becomes the oppressed, just as white people took the land from indigenous people and then named themselves their victims, so too has whiteness always been a means of claiming the suffering it inflicts on others as its own. And I think that goes a long way to not only telling us why this movement has appeal, why 50% more black men voted for Trump in 2020 than voted in 2016, and why we all need to be concerned about the growing possibility that a browning of America will not save us from fascism. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And and people can't see this, but but Jeff is nodding along to his own words, like yeah, <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. No, no, I, 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 you know, I, I embarrass me. I'm like saying like, well, cool, because what you do is like I'm like blah 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 blah, and like you know you wrote it in like a, a few yeah. sentences there, and like it's a yeah, little bit yeah. like this is this is a tribute to editors, right? Like the, yeah. what I said was the first draft. What Khalil read was what you know someone like <laughs> Ben or another editor much improved. I mean, so, so Trump was on CNN in this town hall. And so more people witnessed what you're describing pretty recently. And I know you must think about this a lot. You said that like people like us need to understand the symbols of Trumpism and the, and the depth of belief in it. But as we saw on CNN, there's also like this, this danger of giving him a platform oh, and, yeah. and everyone's seeing it. And like, we, we can repeat the mistakes of 2015 and 2016 again. And so how do you think about that? I mean, you, you, you talk about this all the time. You've written this book. Do you sometimes wrestle with this idea that you're like, by regaling us with stories about Trump, 
you're also you know letting him speak more you're 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 giving voice to it yeah i mean like that's the platform question right but i'll say i think the cnn town hall i thought it was obscene i mean and that's not how you do it that's part of the old politics one they want the ratings mm. right um but two then they're going to answer it with the liberal response we're going to fact check him live mm -hmm. well the, what is the point of fact checking there is no point i that's mean right. that's not how you do it i would hope that what i'm doing here first of all you know I don't have 3 million viewers. And I think actually that does matter. This is a book, but also instead of sort of trying to fact check him, the more important thing is to show, I think, how he's constructing this story, what the pieces are, not to say it's just theater, but to really pay attention to it as theater and say, what are the elements of production here? Yeah. What are the elements of, we can see the myth in the making. So Jeff, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your work essentially since the 2020 election and explore this idea of whether we are in a civil war right now. We'll be right back after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. We're back with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Oh, Jeff, this is really uh, so important, I think, what you've done and the media attention to this work, I think, is partly uh, driven by this very provocative subtitle uh, that encapsulates a lot of the reporting that first appeared in Vanity Fair and that you continue to write about, which is this whole idea that we might actually be in a civil war. And so you're kind of like a, a de Tocqueville traveling the country right now. Uh, you're looking at what's happening on the ground. And, and so look, give us your understanding, your evidence uh, that we might be already in a civil war. Take us on your journeys a little bit. Okay, sure. So the big part of the book, The Undertow, is uh, January 6, 2021. We see this young white woman, Ashley Babbitt, an insurrectionist, and she's killed. And um, the cop who kills her is a black man. So right away, we know what's going to happen. It's yeah. going to be a lynching story. She's going to be made into a martyr myth. So I decide to go out to California to a, a rally for Ashley Babbitt. And I go to a rally and there's a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. And someone says, you really want to understand why Ashley Babbitt died? Come to my church. And it's a little mega church in Yuba City, California. There's no crosses in this church, but the pulpit is made of mm. swords. And they explain that as saying we are now in a time of war theology. Tuesday night is new militia recruit night. Um, and this is not, this is a suburban church. These are just regular folks, you know. Um, and they are armed. Uh, they are ready for, they pass the talks openly with joy about the executions to come. There's people around you who have already seceded in their imagination. You know, the mm. slow civil war that I imagine, imagine, believe is happening right now. It's not coming. Mm. People say, could there be violence? And it always stuns me. What do you mean? Could there be violence? Um, there's always, there is already violence. There is already yes. violence and there's always been violence. Right. But there's violence on top of violence now. It is, you know, what has been a simmer is coming to perhaps a slow boil. Um, they have already accepted the idea of civil war. When That was back in the spring mm. of 21 when I started noticing some historians using civil war talk. Right. And, and Khalil, you know, yeah. like how, in a way, slow moving, especially historians can be, right? Like they're like, yeah, let's yeah. not jump to conclusions. But so they're saying that. Well, when January 6th happened... Not only was I convinced that this was possible, but I recalled that on the inauguration of Lincoln in March, it was only a month later that the South, uh, that South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter. So the proximity of January 6th to the inauguration of Joe Biden felt eerily familiar, like these people were doing a preemptive warfare, yeah. essentially. And, and they essentially were. So yeah, not, not hyperbole at this point. Preemptive, that's a good phrase. Preempt, there's a way in which I think so much of the, the arming up. And that was, uh, you know, I, then I started going to more churches and every church I went to, you know, you would ask civil war and people, the answer was always yes. It was just whether it's happening right now or it's coming or whether it's something you look forward to or something you regretfully accept. I mean, you know, the fact that like, look, if you've got more and more like the state of Florida, where you've got people who really think that the books in their schools are teaching white kids to hate themselves and, uh, teaching what you understand as dramatic perversion 
from their perspective, they're in the slow civil war too. And we're the ones waging the assault. I'm not like saying both sides, but I think, and there's casualties. Look, every, every pregnant person who's dying for lack of reproductive rights is a casualty. We as journalists know that like we hear a case here, a case there, we know there's a hundred for every one of those. I think the wave of queer and trans kids, suicides, um, not all of them, but a lot of them are casualties. These mass shootings, yeah. those are casualties. I want to push yeah. back against this a little bit to both of you, because you said, Khalil, that, that you don't think this is hyperbole. And I don't know, but I, I think about the language of civil war being being alarmist language, either pur- purposefully so. And I think about like what's to gain by using that language and also what's lost by using that kind of alarmist language. And I have no doubt I mean, in my opinion, that that the drumbeat of what's been going on the extreme right has shifted the center rightward. Like the things that we accept as okay, that even centrist Dems are like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to settle for that. Like we're living through that right now. But that to me is different than, say, a civil war, which there are, if we don't have North and South, we at least have like sides and there's some like sense. We don't, to, to connect the dots of every sort of, uh, you know, semi-connected act of, of violence and say, the, this is evidence, seems like it could be a little bit um, loose. And so, so yeah, I'm throwing that back on you, both of you, like what is, what's the value or, and what are, what's the danger of using that kind of language? I mean, f- for me as, as a historian in this conversation, uh, I mean, the context of our actual civil war is the context of people who try to work through these issues politically, an entire political party was born in the early days of dissolution, uh, meaning the Republican Party, because the prior Whig Party couldn't work out its differences on this question of expansion over slavery. The fact that the people who were combatants in this in, in our civil war had uh, gone to college together, had led together uh, in, in political state houses and, and the U.S. Capitol, um, reminds me, at least as a historian, that the line between normal and war is very thin. Mm. (laughs) And the thing that I think makes the future more precarious than the prior Trump administration is that now Trumpism has metastasized. And whatever governors we imagined in terms of normalcy amongst most elected officials, people like Mike Pence, who was who was not too far away from being the victim of a lynch mob on January 6th, um, like Mitch McConnell and like much of the Republican leadership, have accepted Trumpism as a political base of the Republican Party and seemed, seem to have no capacity to reverse course from that. So the again, brothers in arms on different sides of this equation led to um, nearly a million people dying in this country. And I'm not convinced that, uh, that what we think of as normal today or as not something beyond the pale isn't a reality for us all to, to come to terms with. So when you say hyperbole, I say we need an appropriate early warning system. And I think that's where Jeff's work is really helpful. Yeah, thank you for the historical context. And, and, and that makes me think in terms of um, the sort of the nearness of people. The other objection that I often hear is like, you know, either you had this North and the South, whatever, and now we're all mixed up. Uh, and, you know, that this the central trip of the book begins in Sacramento, California, where I meet a young Latinx couple, actually, who are pretty full Trump fascists, and they are leaving California. So we're talking about, you know, these sort of blue, yeah. supposedly mm-hmm. blue areas. Uh, uh, 
they are sifting themselves out. They're moving inland, they say. They wouldn't say exactly sure mm. where, maybe Oklahoma, looking for red territory. And so there's a little bit of, on the one hand, this sort of centrifuging out of people sorting themselves out. And of course, I just met mm. the other day some folks who had moved from uh, uh, Texas to uh, Schenectady, New York. They need to get out of Texas. Uh, uh, trans folks, um, I have friends who have moved uh, out of Wisconsin because they do not feel safe there. There's that. And I think the advantage, the advantage of, of the alarm is to sort of say, hey, look, this is what we're messing around with. All right, Jeff, this is uh, this is powerful stuff and uh, despairing in some ways that your book became a, a New York Times bestseller is wonderful for you, but a little bit problematic that this is what we have. <laughs> no, to... No, no, that's good. That's good. We want it to be a bestseller. <laughs> I, I have to say there was like some hope. I'm like, what if I call it slow civil war? But man, a year and a half from now when this comes out, people, things have just so mellowed out that are people like, oh, give me a break. And instead, it's like, you know, you do NPR and you're like, can I use the F word fascism? And they're like, oh, yes, yes, please. We better talk about that. And that's that's not good. Better that yeah. the book be remaindered. So when we come back from a short break, we're going to talk about the future. We'll be right back. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation, with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. 
LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. We're talking to Jeff Charlotte today about his really powerful and despairing and mm. to some degree hopeful, surprisingly enough, a study about a slow civil war. And why do I say hopeful? It's hopeful because, Jeff, you open with this uh, surprising tribute to Harry Belafonte. Uh, you talk about a man whose artistry was his activism and who could never separate those two things. And uh, someone who just passed away uh, this spring, just a couple of weeks before the recording of this interview. Um, I have to say I was moved at by, age 96. He, he was at 96. Age 96. Yeah. I was moved by, by what you said about Harry Belafonte, not just because I think uh, people don't really appreciate uh, the life of this giant, uh, but also because I knew Harry Belafonte. I was at the Schomburg Center um, in some of the last productive years of his life before he sort of retreated from, uh, from public life. I got to know uh, him and his wife, Pam. I've been in his apartment. And Harry never, Mr. B, as we call him, never stopped moving chess pieces on a board. He was always thinking about where people needed to be on the battlefields of racial justice and social justice in this country. And I had just taken a job at Harvard, 2016, and he sits down with me in his apartment and he says, I need you to take over Sankofa, uh, which is an organization that he started uh, that Dina Belafonte's daughter is leaving now. It's a cultural organization committed to sort of building the cultural muscle and infrastructure um, of, of social justice warriors and of the left more generally. And while we're in the middle of this conversation, I'm like, oh, shit, like, I just got this job at Harvard. I can't turn Mr. B down. Like, what, <laughs> what is happening right now? <laughs> and that was one of the hardest no's I ever had to uh, give to somebody to turn Mr. B down for an opportunity to help be part of his legacy. But, oh, boy, what a guy, what a person, what a human being. And tell us, like, why do you tell us about Harry Belafonte in this book? What is, what is the message about the future you are trying to impart from someone who, who just left us? I wanted to start the book, which I was writing partly because I have a 14-year-old non-binary trans kid who is despairing. And mm. I was looking for some hope, but not cheap grace. Mm. And um, I thought, okay, that's what Mr. B is. And I think about all these tributes since he died. And I've, you know, done there's someone who wrote about him, you, you do some interviews and so on. And there's a certain kind of folk who's sort of really surprised to hear that he was angry, right? Mm. I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy was angry all of his days. Yeah. Um, he cursed and, a lot. He, <laughs> he did yeah. not miss words. Yeah. They want him to be a sweet old man. And the hope mm -hmm. is that anger. And, and that yeah. line that he says that I think is really powerful, it says, where your anger comes from doesn't matter as much as what you do with it. Now, it matters where it comes from, but not as much as what you do with it. And that transformation. The other thing that you said is that the culture, his, his, his art and his activism are one and the same. So to those of us urging us to see culture as somehow a separate issue, mm -hmm. not for this guy 96 years in the struggle who transformed American life. Mm. Yeah. Jeff, hope but not cheap grace is a beautiful line. Uh, 
maybe I'm being more of the Eeyore in this conversation again, but um, he's dead. He died. And, and you're, you're, you're talking about a kind of activism that is a thing of the past, literally, like he's, he's a relic. And, you know, so I worry about that of like whether this continues. And so then the question is, how do you see sort of the Belafontes today doing this work? Like who is carrying on that legacy that we're supposed to see this work still happening? Where do we see the resistance? Where do we see the, the, the fighting? Where do we see the protest? I mean, partly, isn't it what this show is supposed to be? Right? <laughs> yes, yes. Right here, kid. Right here. That's, yes. that's what we were looking for. Ding, ding, ding. You are now, you are now one of our best friends. You are now one of our best friends. Yeah. I mean, really, well, actually, like, let's think about this, like, cultural historians, and it always astonishes me. I don't know if historians are doing it, but I'm in an English department, and there's nobody paying attention to podcasting as a text of our times, which is astonishing mm. to me, because it seems really relevant. And there's a lot of challenge you know and we could each little podcast we could say oh is that really making the difference no and each fundraiser mr b did whatever did that really make the difference no in fact he was defeated right that's part of the hope not cheap grace and that's why it ends with this other line uh that i always knew the last line of the book was going to be this line from this guy lee hayes this songwriter who was broken by the red scare and he says from the 1950s 1950s um and you know people know him from if i had a hammer like the american songbook he's pete seeger's songwriting partner and he's got this line for a while it was possible not to be scared even and Mm. he's describing a scene very much like one that mr b endured of being chased through uh for mr b it's being chased by the clan through uh uh the mississippi mississippi Mm-hmm. For Lee, it's being chased in Arkansas. He's in a car with union organizers and gun thugs are on their tail and they're singing hymns. And he says, for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. And let me put this in the context of an activist named Suzanne Farr, who I met some years ago, a very sweet, old, white, southern grandmotherly lady. Um, she had built a lesbian separatist commune in um, rural Arkansas, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And then these, these, uh, these cishet women start showing up, running from their violent partners and said, will you take us in? So they took them in. And then the partners come with their guns mm. and Suzanne and her comrades stand their ground. And I was mm. with Suzanne and a younger activist and the younger activist says, oh, that's so wonderful. You built a safe space. And Suzanne, the sweet old grandmother, puts her hand on the younger activist's hand and says, oh, honey, there are no fucking safe spaces. Um, but there might be these safe moments, right? For a while, it was possible not to be scared even. And like, where is that work happening? It's not happening so much in a space as in moments. Maybe the moment is a podcast. Uh, maybe the moment is there. But you're right. I can't point to anyone. I mean, Harry, yeah. I think 96 years he, he he ran the good race. Like, yeah. who is the next Mr. B? We don't know. We'll know after they have lived their 96 years. I'm like, God damn, that person, we didn't realize all that they were doing. They are yeah. there yeah. among us. That doesn't mean yeah. we win, but it means we could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we need to expand those moments. We need to yeah. expand those yeah. moments so that they become our, our reality. Jeff Charlotte, it was amazing to have you on uh, today. Uh, You've shared a lot with us that we all need to pay attention to. Um, Go, Folks, go out there. Continue to keep this book on uh, the bestseller list for the New York Times. Jeff Charlotte, The Undertow. Um, We're just uh, grateful for what you've done and what you'll continue to write about. 
And Jeff, we've been on this journey alongside one another for 20 years. Let's keep it going. Another 20. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> right on, Thank man. you, Khalil. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you. Oh, man, uh, this was a really powerful conversation with Jeff, yeah. uh, Ben. And I, I, I don't know, I, I, there's something that stuck out to me at the top of the conversation okay. when, when Jeff described this book, The Undertow, in terms of like a social movement on the right. I mean, often we hear the words populism, um, but this notion that it could be a social movement, you know, it, it doesn't hit our ears the same way that we often think about social movements is always being about the expansion yeah. of democracy, justice, truth, and- Because we're, we're, we're thinking about social movements on the left, you mean, like, yeah. And that's so right. he's talking about it on the right of this, this, this rising tide that is, it's organized, yeah. That's right. And the extent to which he's right makes perfect sense when we look at the grassroots mobilization down to local school boards fighting for misinformation and censorship and like when he talks about fascism as a mass movement, it reminded me of this essay that Toni Morrison wrote uh -oh. in 1995. Get, getting literary, <laughs> I love it, I love it, getting yeah. literary. Yeah, it's a really powerful quote and I think it speaks to this moment so clearly. She said, fascism can only reproduce the environment that supports its own health, fear, denial, and an atmosphere in which its victims have lost the will to fight. Okay, break it down. Well, I just think that what Jeff is telling us in this book is that the other side is mobilizing to fucking fight. Mm. Like, that's what they're doing. And he talked about casualties already, you know, even including victims of reproductive injustice. Yeah. And talking about, of course, the proliferation of guns on the right and the mass killings. And his own child, like his fear for his own child who who is non-binary. Yeah. That's right. And so I I think as we move forward in this moment, I think part of the challenge on the left is to meet the challenge of a social movement, which is to say that a lot more people have to be mobilized to stand up for the democracy that they claim to believe in. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because then it's also why to give a bigger platform to these issues is because we have to figure out how to confront them. We have to organize, we have to have a social movement that matches in some ways what's actually going on. We have, to That's right. we have to know the other side much more, much better. That's right. And I mean, th thinking about like, how do you do that? I mean, part of it, even having this conversation about Harry Belafonte is also about the power of culture to mobilize people, meaning that the symbols, the sound, the music, uh, the stories we tell are all part of the infrastructure that you need to build a social movement. And the right is clearly mobilized to do that. The left seems to be still trying to figure this out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, we, you talk about uh, bringing a, a knife or a pen to a gunfight. And, <laughs> right. and you know, that's part of the, the, the what's so scary about this is that the proliferation of guns, of, of, of bringing automatic weapons, just holding them on the street. I don't think the answer is to respond with the same. Um, you know, we have this disease of guns in this country and certainly like what he is witnessing by travel the country is seeing the, the sort of cult, the religion of guns. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a way we have to confront that. Um, and what you're describing, I don't think is like, you know, matching weapons to weapons, which is not a slow civil war, but a fast one. 
but but there is some there is some some deeper kind of organizing and even cultural movement which has to happen. Yes, and when Toni Morrison says the victims have lost the will to fight, listen, the world is a violent place. There are 193 countries in the world. Conflict happens. There's a war in, in Russia and Ukraine. The Ukrainians didn't sit around <laughs> and, and wait to have a debate when bombs started dropping and when violence occurred. And so I just think we have to be really honest about what's happening in this country. And we have to use all the tools at our disposal, including culture, including the right to self-defense, including the right to stand up for truth and justice wherever it is necessary in all the places that is required because the other side is not playing games. I'm, I'm hearing you by any means necessary, and and and, and, and I just want to say uh, I'm glad we're on the we're on, we're if we're not on the front lines, I'm glad we're on the second lines together. So uh, I love you, man. Love you too. Some of my best friends are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Lucy Sullivan. Our associate producer is Rachel Yang. It's edited by Sarah Nix with help from Keishel Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.